Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This is an exciting episode for two reasons. First, it's our very first episode dedicated to the topic of Brexit. Second, and more importantly, we are super excited to have with us today Dr. Swati Dingra. Swati is an economist and an assistant professor at the London School of Economics. To her credit, Swati and her LSE team were of the first, if not the first, economists to begin researching into the question of what the implications of Brexit would actually mean. She was there long before the vote on June 23, 2016, and long before anybody was really paying attention to the issue. And she's been there explaining this Brexit process to the public every step of the way. This episode is the No Deal episode. So as we speak, the Brits and the EU representatives are working hard, trying first of all to sort out Britain's exit from the EU, its divorce bill, and then eventually they'll figure out what the future trade relationship between Britain and the EU will be. They have until March 2019 to work something out. And as far as I know, everyone is trying to avoid a no-deal outcome. That would be this cliff-edge scenario in which Britain is jettisoned from the EU's free trade bloc. Economically speaking, it would be highly disruptive. But for some reason, people keep on talking about this thing. Like it's either a reasonable option or something that the UK government should be actively preparing for. Swati, why is the no deal option so present in the public debate in Britain at the moment? I think in the political rhetoric, it's mostly there for a tactical reason, which is to say that, yes, of course, if we say that any deal is better than a no deal, we're never going to be able to get a very good deal. But there's an even more important element to it, which is the purely practical point. Are we going to be able to negotiate all those laws, all those various trade policy clauses that exist today with the European Union, how are we going to move forward on that? Are we going to be able to do that within two years? Okay, so there's a real chance that essentially they run out of time, the talks fail, and so this is contingency planning, all this talk of a no deal. Exactly, and you would hope that every government does do that in the event that there is, in fact, no deal. But on the other side of things as well, there's also the possibility that talks could fail because of what happens in the EU process. And so tell us a little bit about that. I mean, this isn't just the UK can get whatever it wants and assume that it's going to go through the EU ratification process. What's the experience there? The general experience has been that any trade agreement, and that's not just EU-specific, in general, any trade agreement takes some time. A shallow trade agreement, which isn't about every kind of regulation, is going to take about, say, on average two years. If we think of much deeper trade agreements that have been negotiated, let me give you one example, which is the EU-Swiss agreement, which is a very deep trade agreement and which took about 20 years for it to evolve. We can't expect that things are going to happen overnight. And more importantly, if we do want an ambitious new deal with the European Union, that's going to require potentially ratification from national parliaments. And those processes can take very long, as we've seen before in the EU-Canada trade agreement. For folks that don't remember, that was a deal that was negotiated in 2016, and it was held up for a period of time by the region of Wallonia in Belgium that refused to ratify the deal until certain elements were changed to their liking. All right, Swati, can you summarize a little bit what exactly no deal would mean? A no deal for the UK would mean that it's going to be like any other member of the WTO, just like, say, the US is in relation to the European Union. 
Now, what that's going to mean, step one is we no longer have zero tariffs because we have to charge the European Union the same tariffs that we charge to the rest of the World Trade Organization members. Similarly, the European Union would have to charge us the same tariffs that they charge to any other WTO member, which could be China, India, Brazil, the US. Then we have to think about all of the other issues that would arise, which is that we have a lot of regulations we take from the European Union. This is what keeps the ability to do business across borders high for the UK producers selling in the European Union market. All of these issues are now going to be no longer applicable. They don't exist in law and therefore we would have to worry about what happens to businesses and their cost of doing business when they have to transact with the European Union outside of the European Union. Okay, we should pause at this point and just explain how deep this trade relationship is with the EU. Within the EU, there are these four freedoms, movement of goods, capital, services and labour. That means there are zero tariffs between the members, so goods can move around freely. But the real point is to lower non-tariff barriers, like differences in rules and standards. So there are essentially a lot of EU institutions dedicated to making sure that regulations are harmonised. There's equivalence of standards between the different countries. And that means that drugs that are legal in Britain are legal elsewhere. And it also means that, say, financial services companies can sell their wares into the Eurozone and the European Union so that British companies can export stuff to the rest of the EU. Those are the kinds of essentially non-tariff barriers that were removed with the EU, and those are the kinds of things that are now under threat. But first of all, let's start with tariffs. So let's get more specific. What does a no-deal Brexit mean in terms of the level of tariffs that would change? In terms of tariffs, that's not the big ticket item here because we're talking about developed countries, two developed countries, and we already know that developed country tariffs amongst each other are fairly low. So there can be still tariff peaks, but on average, we're talking about a 1.5% tariff cost, which isn't such a big deal for businesses because those non-tariff barriers are just going to be much more important. What about UK tariffs on EU imports? So we would have to charge tariffs on EU imports unless we also decide under this no deal scenario to also extend the same tariff free access to the rest of the World Trade Organization members. We can't discriminate within the WTO and therefore we must charge the European Union tariffs as well. Okay, so if the UK just unilaterally drops all of its tariffs to 0% under the rules of the WTO, it has to give the same to everyone else. There's sort of two problems with that. One is that if we've already given all our tariff breaks away, then we have no bargaining chip left to deal with the European Union when we're negotiating a new deal. The second problem with that is that even if we were to put all our tariffs to zero, the estimated gains that we would expect from that sort of unilateral liberalization in tariffs is not very high because many of the products that consumers care about are really not taxed very heavily and because the UK is such a service-oriented economy and services have no tariffs to begin with. And presumably some of the sectors that were protected with high tariffs would be pretty unhappy. So I think the big tariff peaks are largely in agriculture. Mm. And if those tariffs are slashed, we're also talking about taking away that protection from the farmers that are in the UK. So agriculture is an example of one industry currently in the UK that is protected from imports from the rest of the world with currently high tariffs. But there's other sectors that we have out there that are potentially going to have their tariffs increase with this no deal scenario. They're going to have all of a sudden new tariffs on their trade with the European Union. 
I've heard automobiles talked about in this context. So what's the story there? Let me give you a bit of background of what the UK car industry looks like. About 40 to 60% of cars in a typical UK plant are meant for export to the European Union market. We're talking about an industry where they keep just about two hours of inventory on stock, which means they're really relying on cross-border trade and quick cross-border trade. The moment you start getting out of the European Union and having to deal with WTO rules, what that's going to mean is that now the car industry will have to pay tariff when earlier it didn't, and that tariff could be somewhere in the range of 10%, because that's what the European Union currently charges to other World Trade Organization members. Now, that means we would now have to pay tariffs, not just the one time that that part or that car crosses the border, but every time it crosses the border. And what we know really well is that the supply chains are so completely enmeshed with the European Union that the car parts or the car itself would be crossing borders several times over. The automobile industry would say that the typical crossing is 40 times. So we're talking about potentially massive cascading issues attached with these tariffs. Could tariffs on imports from non-EU countries rise as a result of a no-deal scenario? Absolutely. At the moment, we have about 30-plus trade agreements. As a member of the European Union, the EU negotiated on behalf of the UK with these third countries. And all of those trade agreements in principle would lapse unless we were able to somehow grandfather these trade agreements in. But in principle, at the moment that those lapse, we are going to have to put tariffs on them at the same level as the rest of the World Trade Organization members. So that's tariffs and they would not be fun for the industries affected. But let's talk about my favourites, non-tariff barriers. In a no-deal scenario, which will be the first non-tariff barriers to go up? I think what you're going to see immediately would be something like a border check coming into place because now those regulations which we currently automatically comply with in the future need not be exactly the same as the European Union and therefore you would first see people come into place to see if we're complying with the existing regulations, whether we're going to comply with the future regulations and if in fact tariffs do come into place then we're going to have customs agents enforcing those tariff barriers at the border. Can we say what that would mean practically at places like Dover or Calais, the ports? The key issue here is that we would need agents in place to be able to either do physical checks or we would need some other electronic system in place that every time a good crosses the border between the UK and the EU through Dover or Calais, that in fact it has paid the appropriate tariff, it has complied with the appropriate regulations. Practically, what that's going to mean is that potentially there could be a big, big backlog within the UK of doing trade across with the EU. Let me give you a reason why that's true. Primarily practical. Do we have the capacity to police these kinds of goods moving across borders? If you want to get a sense of that, the UK at the moment has 5,000 customs agents who can perform that sort of task. A similar size country like Germany has 35,000 agents already. So we're talking about a fairly substantial increase in the workload of these border enforcement agents. So that's really interesting. And going back to your automobiles example of these parts that might have to go back and forth across the border 40 times, you can just envision these trucks, or I guess as you call it in the UK, lorries, sitting at Dover and Calais. (laughs) going back and forth, sitting in long lines or queues, as you call it in the UK, waiting to get across the border, slowing down these supply chains in just-in-time procedures. Okay, so that's the stuff that happens at the border. And that seems like it could really get screwed up because of the no-deal Brexit. 
But what about all of these non-tariff barriers that are happening behind the border? Could British exporters suddenly find that they're just not allowed to sell their stuff into the EU anymore because it doesn't meet the right standards for some reason? The main thing about EU membership is that we all comply with almost the same rules and regulations, which means I don't need to check every time a good or a service crosses the border whether it is compliant with existing regulations of the European Union. Now, if tomorrow we're no longer members of the European Union, it's not automatic anymore. So one way of doing that would be we say that, well, we mutually recognize each other's standards, and that seems a fairly reasonable thing to do because at the moment today, we are compliant with the European Union. But no business relies on just what is going to happen today. They care about what is going to happen tomorrow. And that's exactly what consumers care about too. Are they going to continue to get the level of quality that they expect from a European Union market? And that's what the UK producers would have to prove over and over again. And that's really where the cost of doing business is going to go up in the future. Can we talk about a specific industry, an example? What about the the pharmaceutical sector? So the pharmaceutical industry, interestingly, in our estimates, is one of the worst affected sectors for the UK economy after Brexit. And one of the reasons for that is that almost every aspect of what goes into pharmaceuticals is going to be affected. One issue is that at the moment, the European Safety Agency for Medicines is located in the UK. And in principle, what we've heard is that they talk a lot to the companies while they're doing research. They talk a lot to them when actually monitoring whether these pharmaceuticals and compliance with safety standards. Once all of that breaks down, we would now have to go to some European agency to get the approval to be able to sell in the European market. And in the future, that conversation breaks down. And more importantly, many other factors like migration of skilled workers across borders were fundamental to the R&D industry. And that's the pharmaceutical industry in particular. All of those channels are going to start to become much harder to deal with. One other example I can talk about is what regulations mean, say, for consumers. And one way to think about that is the Toy Safety Directive, which is done at the level of the European Union. And what it says is it puts in place certain safety requirements for what children's toys must be like. Now, why is it that a Toy Safety Directive is important at the EU level? Because if we were doing it just at the UK level, we would have to check every time that toy crosses the border. We would then also have to worry about what if one batch is being produced for the European Union, one batch is being produced for the UK, potentially there's some cross-contamination. Even though the businesses are compliant with both standards, there's still that risk to the consumer. And these are the sorts of issues which, as the different kinds of toys get developed, as different kinds of chemicals get discovered, those regulations will have to keep evolving. And how will the UK manage to keep up with the European regulations and vice versa? That's really where the problem arises. So that's an example of a regulatory divergence that could really mess up the toy industry if there was no deal, if there was no way for the EU to essentially agree that British toy standards were the same or equivalent to EU ones. What about the plane industry? I've heard talk that planes would be grounded, we wouldn't be able to fly into the EU. Yes, I think for the services sector, this is the big issue. What happens to regulatory equivalents, not today, but tomorrow, into the future? And the biggest example is the one with the airplane industry, that at the moment we have to comply with the European Aviation Safety Agency standards. What that means is that there's a European level system in place, which is looking at whether planes comply with safety standards. Now, if tomorrow we're out of the European Union, the UK would have to either devise its own agency 
which some have estimated would be about 400 million pounds for a decade. And we would have to make sure that this agency talks directly to the European Union agency. What we also need to keep in mind is that the European Union may not be okay with recognizing our agency. And in that scenario, yes, planes will have to stop flying because this is a basic requirement that all airline firms have to comply with. If we do Brexit and EasyJet now wants to continue to fly planes into the European Union, what it would have to do would be to find a headquarter in the European Union. It would be potentially getting out of the UK to be able to relocate to the European Union so that it can continue serving the European consumers. Unless there is a deal and somehow we agree that plane companies can have the headquarters exactly. in the UK. Exactly, unless Armageddon doesn't strike. <laughs> unless. Okay, we love airplanes on this podcast, as our listeners will be well aware. And you can understand this from the European Union's perspective. They were going to be looking at the UK and saying, why should we trust the safety of these airplanes coming out of this brand new agency that doesn't have any experience in monitoring the safety of aircraft? Okay, but let's turn next to an even bigger segment of the UK's economy, which is financial services. That seems to be a potentially major sticking point with the EU. Do we have any idea what's going to happen in in the event that there's no deal for that sector? I think at the moment, what the UK government is aiming for, this is all wishful thinking, is that passporting rights continue to be recognized. So what are these things? Well, if a financial service has to cross the border between the UK and the EU, it has to have the ability to do so, which means that the European Union recognizes the Bank of England. It knows that these banks are being well regulated. It recognizes that and allows these companies to come and serve in the European Union market. It does not do that even for partners with which it has a very deep trade agreement. So there's a reason Swiss banks have branches in the UK. It's because they want to serve the European consumer. They can't do that directly because Switzerland does not have a passport to serve the European consumer, only for very, very limited financial services, but really not the kind of broad access that the UK has. It has to go through the UK. The problem is that The EU has been much more reluctant to allow financial services to be completely that anybody can come and serve us because there are massive issues about who ultimately is going to be the regulator. And that's why even in the European-Canada deal, which all of us know is one of the deepest trade deals that the European Union has, even there we see a very small fraction of financial services that are covered for free access. So in that sense, we really think that the financial services could be potentially hit. How big that number is? is very hard to say because now we're talking not so much about trade and services, which are still better recorded, but rather we're talking about foreign investment. So one of the big issues is that we can't really, we don't really know how big this impact could be because a lot of the money that's coming into the financial services sector on account of being a member of the European Union is that we're getting a lot of foreign investment, both from the European Union as well as from American banks, Swiss banks, to be able to serve the European Union market. The extent of that is what we can't pin down, but we do understand that that could be potentially an even bigger negative effect. Do we know anything about how markets might react on the morning after a no deal? I think we have some sense of that if we were to go by what happened the day after the referendum, but it's too early to tell and really making these short-term predictions is a bit foolhardy. Do we have any idea if there are legal contracts that are dependent on the UK's membership of the EU that could be void and maybe that could cause some kind of crisis? 
I think we know that we just don't know enough. That's as best as I can say. So let me give you one example. In the middle, one of the European Commission agencies had said that for clearing houses to be able to clear certain financial instruments which were related to which were euro based, they would have to be located within the eurozone. Later, the UK appealed it. It's not a member of the eurozone and this was an important business for the UK. It went up to the European Court of Justice and they said that the European Commission's commission's agency was not correct in enforcing this rule. Many of these clauses we have to recognize have either never been adjudicated on, so we're talking about completely new areas of legislation or new areas of dispute settlement. So in that sense, we can't predict for sure what's going to happen tomorrow in the financial services sector. This is a particularly acute problem within the financial services sector, but this is something which is going to come up repeatedly in many other sectors because we're talking about 40 regulatory agencies that would have to either be replicated or somehow shared with the European Union. In some of your research, I know you've looked at what the potential implications of this actually are. Have you tried to quantify the impact of a no-deal Brexit? I think I should say that I have better things to do with my time than make silly forecasts about what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't have a crystal ball in front of me. (laughs) But what I can say is that the relevant question is not about what is going to happen tomorrow. The relevant question is, if we are to Brexit, what happens? And if we are to have another different kind of Brexit, what would be the impact on the UK economy? And if we're going to make a decision which overturns 40 years of policy, I think short-run impacts are not what we want to look at. We want to think about what the long-term impacts would be. So what I can say, if you're really going to push me to give you a short-term number, the best we can do is say something about, well, five years down the line, suppose the Brexit trade costs have come into place, then compared to a situation where we continue as members of the EU, then what's going to be the cost to the British economy? That number is not insubstantial. So again, take this with a grain of salt because five-year short, five-year forecasts are harder to do and we don't know what exact form of policy would be. But the numbers would be in the range of about a 3.5% to 6% reduction over the next five years in British GDP. So that sounds pretty big. And by the trade costs, you're referring to the tariffs and the non-tariff barriers and those regulatory hurdles. Okay, so that sounds not great. But hopefully in response to this on the domestic policy side, the British government won't just be standing pat. They'll actually be trying to deal with some of the transitional and adjustment problems that are likely to crop up. So what do you think should be the priorities of the future governments in dealing with this transition? I'm going to put this in the context of what the economy in the UK has been over not the last five years or last 10 years, but in general, what's been happening in the UK. And we've got to realize that we've had almost 30 years of low wage growth. And in fact, since the financial crisis, we're talking about a situation where real wages have in fact even fallen. What do we do now? Well, if we are to exit the European Union, this is going to have very different impacts based on which sector we're talking about, based on which particular region we're talking about. And in a deeply divided country like that, seeing the same lagging areas get further behind is going to be something which is going to show up in terms of greater inequality, greater political polarization. And broadly, what what we can say is that if you look region by region by region, it's typically the case that you would find that low-wage areas, so you know places in the north compared to London, are going to be less badly hit by Brexit because they're not as integrated with the European Union as, say, London is. But during the financial crisis, the lesson that we learned was that even though on immediate impact... London may be more badly hit, London is also much more likely to recover. While these other regions, which have already been seeing much lower wages, 
potentially are going to have much harder times recovering. And we see pretty much negative consequences in almost every region in the UK. Let's talk about government planning for this no-deal scenario. To fill in listeners, there was this fantastic story that Chris Cook of Newsnight here in Britain uncovered on October 9th. So he found this thing called Project After was being planned for, which, no, I looked online, it's not Project Anime Fan Fiction Twisted Entertainment Review, which is projectafter.com. Not that, it's a different thing. It's the Department for International Trade's plans for a no-deal Brexit. So the things that Chris reported were being considered were dropping all tariffs, so unilateral tariff reduction, which is something that we spoke about earlier, but also maybe joining TPP. Maybe jettison from the EU, Britain could join this magic land of um, uh, Asian trade deals. Um, And The Telegraph, which is a British newspaper, has been very excited about the UK joining NAFTA. Swati, what do you make of it? I think the UK does leave the customs union. What this is going to do is that we wouldn't anymore have to go do trade deals with other countries through the EU. So we would have that competence back within the UK. Now, that sounds like a great idea that then we can go start striking these great deals with the US, with China, India. These are the you know future fast growing nations compared to, say, the European Union. And we could then see massive increases in trade. Life is unfortunately not that great because what we think would happen with the EU is that trade could fall anywhere between 13 to 40 percent, according to most estimates. And at the moment, about half of our trade and foreign investment is with the European Union. So let's say we think about a scenario where, yes, we go and do amazing trade deals with China and India. A Commonwealth study says that if there is an, a UK-India deal, that would take up trade to by about 33 percent. In any year, that's an amazing number. But if you look at what the baseline estimate for how much we trade with India is, under 5%. So under 5% of our trade is with India. We cannot, with even a great 33% increase in trade, we can't anywhere come close to the 50%, 45% number that we see with the European Union. The other proposals that are out there, such as the unilateral liberalization case, when we've tried to factor in how that would matter for the UK economy, we find that it would just stem the losses by 0.3% of GDP. The actual losses in a no-deal scenario are 10 times that. If we think of also having a new trade deal with the US, the nice thing is that yes, you know, eliminating all tariffs with the US would still give a boost to the UK economy. We think that number is about 0.7% of GDP. Four times of that number is what we would lose by lower trade and investment with the European Union. So we're talking about just different magnitudes here and making up for that loss of EU trade is gonna be very, very difficult. And the most important thing to keep in mind is that when we're trading with the US, we're a junior partner. We're not ever going to get quite the deal that the EU potentially can get for us from the US. But suppose that's not true. Suppose, in fact, alone we can negotiate better. Then we're talking about still having to deal with many of the same problems which we've seen the European Union encounter, which is things like, how do we deal with chlorinated chicken? And we can't get through an episode of Trade Talks without chlorinated chicken. <laughs> <Heaven> so, <laughs> so many of those issues are going to remain. And good trade deals are not just about, can I get a better price for what I am consuming today? It's also about the quality of everything, which is work, environment, products, services, all of those things. And that's really going to be the question. A happy note to end on. That is all from this episode of Trade Talks. 
So, some acknowledgements. Thanks again so much to Swati Dingra for sharing her research and insights with us on the economic consequences of a no-deal Brexit. Swati, if there was one thing of yours that listeners should go away and read, what would it be? I think my foreign affairs piece, which is called Salvaging Brexit. Great, okay, we will be tweeting out a link. And I'd also recommend Swati's recent piece from the London Review of Books called How Not to Do Trade Deals. I'd also like to thank Chris Cook, investigative reporter, extraordinaire, and fellow trade geek for his excellent work on this project after. And to you guys, thanks for listening. Please do leave us a nice review on iTunes. We would love it. No review is probably better than a bad review. So if you hate us both, then you probably already stopped listening and have better things to do with your time than troll us on iTunes. I should reiterate that we are starting this project from scratch and we rely on amazing people like you to tell your friends all about us. If you have any specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. I'm at Swati Dhingra LSE. And we are on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. Because we're economists and we like two more than one. That was really good. Can you do it every week instead of Chad? Is that? <laughs> oh, that's harsh. But a great idea. But a great idea, yes. <laughs>